Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in a hot seat. I'm Gunnar Esiason. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced a sweeping change over the way care is delivered in the United States. American patients have been confronted with questions about healthcare rationing, an overnight transition to telehealth, and rising healthcare costs. Today, we have a deep dive interview with Carmela Coyle, the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. She began her tenure as president and CEO of the California Hospital Association, the statewide leader representing the interests of more than 400 hospitals and health systems in California in October 2017. Previously, Carmela led the Maryland Hospital Association for nine years, where she played a leading role in reframing the hospital payment system in Maryland and moving to a value-based methodology. Maryland is now considered a national leader in healthcare policy and innovation. Prior to 2008, Carmela spent 20 years in senior policy positions with the American Hospital Association, including 11 years as the senior vice president of policy, where she served as a national media spokesperson and led the American Hospital Association's policy development and strategy planning activities. Earlier in her career, she worked for the Congressional Budget Office in Washington, D.C., advising members of Congress and their staff on the economic and budgetary implications of legislative policy. This interview was recorded in the fall of 2020. All right, so we're talking with Carmela Coyle, the uh, president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. Uh, Carmela, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So what is the California Hospital Association and what role does it play in the California health system? The California Hospital Association represents uh, all of California's hospitals, 416 hospitals, uh, generally advocating on their behalf at the local, regional, state, and federal level. So it's our job really to move barriers out of the way to allow hospitals to do what they do best, and that is to care for people. Uh, and we represent them in uh, policy and advocacy issues. So what would an example of one of those barriers be? Sure. So uh, regulation that's enacted uh, that requires additional costs, that's overly burdensome. Uh, similarly, laws and regulations can be passed that make things easier. Uh, the Affordable Care Act providing coverage for millions of Americans was critically important to California's hospitals uh, so that they could do the work that they do. Cool. So I mean, we, we are in the middle of a pandemic and uh, I think that's sort of like, the, you know, the white elephant in the room is, you know, how have our hospital systems been uh, managing the pandemic response? So were California hospitals adequately prepared for COVID-19? California's hospitals really operate in a constant stage of readiness. Uh, laws and regulations that make certain and require that we are prepared to address any kind of a disaster. I think what's different about the pandemic is usually when we think about disasters uh, in California in particular, the worst case scenario is usually an earthquake in a populous uh, you know, city. Uh, and in this case, it's a pandemic. And by its very definition means that the usual ways in which we address disasters, calling on mutual aid from other parts of the state, from other states, from the federal government, simply wasn't there and available. So it's a very different way of trying to manage this particular uh, di disaster, uh, this pandemic. And, and we have learned a lot in that process. So I guess one of the things that I've 
learn and he's talking about learning a lot through the, the through the pandemic response um, is really the disparities of health are coming to the forefront here uh, in, in the middle of this pandemic. So what gaps has the pandemic exposed, not only within the California hospital systems, but also within the patient populations that they're serving? Sure. And let me start with the patient population and then talk about other gaps. We have some policy, serious policy questions that we're going to have to address after this pandemic. So in terms of patient population uh, health equity, which has been an issue that we have focused on, worked on, uh, but it really came to the forefront in this pandemic. And that is uh, this disease, COVID-19, a disease that attacks the respiratory system, uh, uh, organs in the body, uh, is particularly challenging for individuals who have co-occurring conditions. So people who've got chronic disease to begin with. What we know is many in our black and brown communities suffer already and disproportionately from those chronic diseases. So number one, COVID-19 hit some of our communities of color harder than it hit other places. Our second challenge is very often our communities of color have less access to early healthcare services, preventive healthcare services, and that also combined uh, to create challenges in terms of equity. One of the things we're doing in California right now as we are looking at policies to reopen counties within the state. In California, I think we may be the only ones, we've got an equity metric. So mm. a county cannot unless they can demonstrate that they have made as much progress in testing for COVID in communities of color as they have in other communities. So uh, it's, a, it's a tough test, but it's got everybody refocused um, and, and really reallocating resources to ensure greater equity. So if that's one gap that's gotten a lot of attention, um, there are other policy gaps that we have really uh, learned in all of this. Uh, the first one being data. When the COVID pandemic hit, we realized there was no tracking system to understand how many people were testing COVID positive, how many were in the hospital. Um, we can now tell you, and actually the California Hospital Association built for the state of California, our COVID-19 tracking system. So we can tell you every single day. Today, we've got 855,000 cases of COVID uh, positivity in the state of California. 16,653 people have unfortunately died from this disease. Uh, 3,100 are in the hospital today. So data was a real gap and we ran quickly to make that up. Another gap in California is we have historically dealt with public health issues at the county level. Well, California, right, huge state, yep. 58 counties. And what we found is we were sometimes dealing with COVID 58 different ways. So one of the big policy questions when we come back, how much of this should be done at the local level? How much should be done at the state level? And what we all know is our public health system was woefully underfunded. Um, and that will be another big discussion as we look at investments in the future. Absolutely. And you're talking about how the, the county level response was so different. I think even on a more macro uh, level, and something that I've really learned through doing this podcast is that the 50 states of the United States have all had their own way with responding to the, the coronavirus. Um, and that each state government wields tremendous influence over their own local response. So what makes California's policy level response 
unique to this crisis? It's a great question. And, and just a reminder uh, that this pandemic could have been handled differently. Uh, it was a decision on the part of the president and his administration that he would leave it to the 50 states. Um, it could have been a national response. In this case, it was not. I think what makes California's response unique, a couple of things. First of all, we have 40 million people in the state of California. So any response is supersized. Um, and that just makes it challenging. We're the fifth largest economy in, in the world. Uh, so that was one. The sheer diversity of our geography we have some very, very remote places, which also meant COVID didn't reach them quickly, but we've got very populous places. So uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, hard hit just because of the density of the population. But we also, I think, have just some of the premier healthcare facilities in the United States. Uh, our governor really uh, grabbed this issue by the horns uh, pulled everyone together. I was personally embedded with the governor and his administration in our operation command center. Um, and the way that we work collaboratively, I think was quite unique in terms of how we address this. And then just given the size, and I'll say maybe the purchasing power of the state of California, it meant that we could go out and begin working with manufacturers to secure more personal protective equipment in large amounts, that we could begin to work with some of the technology companies. Uh, the state worked directly with Google and Verily and others to begin to put together systems to track testing and how we could expand that. So we had some advantages in our size as well. The State of Health will be right back with Carmela Coyle. So now I want to talk more about the individual hospitals here. Have California hospitals been financially strained by the pandemic through loss of various activities from elective surgeries or, or, every, or any other everyday operation that has sort of been put to the wayside uh, throughout the, this, this pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, the, the picture is fairly bleak. Uh, California's hospitals to date have lost some $20 billion dollars and that's just the immediate short-term impact. And that's because initially in collaboration with the governor, we went in and proactively shut down the healthcare system, basically saying that if you don't have an emergent condition, we're gonna cancel procedures, cancel surgeries, uh, cancel appointments so that we could preserve beds for COVID-19 patients and more importantly, preserve staff and personal protective equipment to keep them safe. So uh, there was significant lost revenue to California's hospitals. I think the part that many people don't appreciate is while that may be the immediate short-term revenue hit, there is a long-term economic impact on California's hospitals that will go on and endure, I'll guess, for four to five years. And that is many of them took uh, what financial security they had and had to deploy it because we still had to have all the nurses we needed, all the equipment we needed. People were making investments to be COVID-19 prepared. And that means that they have really, if you will, spent that bank account, spent those savings, which really threatens their financial condition into the future. So I, I guess following up on that, you know, what is one of the reasons why the hospitals were being strained financially. You know, I think, you know, people watched the news, they saw the hospital wards filling up across the country. And, you know, to me, more from the outside perspective, it looks like the hospitals were, were crowded and there was a lot going on. You know, what puts the hospital in a situation that it's actually losing money in that situation? 
Yep, it's a, it's a great question. So a couple of things. First of all, unlike other businesses, right, because everybody has been suffering economically as a result of this pandemic, but for many other businesses, as their revenue fell off, right, so they, they brought their operations down, right, and, and they, in some cases, unfortunately, laid off staff or they simply closed their doors. For hospitals, not only did we not close our doors, we actually ramped up expenses. So at the same time our revenues were coming down, our level of activity and the expense associated with it was even greater. And the second reason that the impact was so great, and, and folks don't often think about how the healthcare financing system works behind the scenes, but how it works for many people who have insurance is we pay a premium to our insurance company. And the insurance company holds on to that money until you go and get a healthcare service. And then the insurance company, in this case, for example, will pay the hospital. So what happened is all of the money was still flowing to the insurance companies. None of the procedures that would normally free up or result in payment to the hospital were being done. And therefore, there was a significant loss of revenue on the largest book of business. So yes, we had some hospitals who were full. We had many, however, in a state as diverse as California who weren't treating any COVID patients, but were shut down in preparation just in case. Right thing to do, but what we've now done with the state is to put together a resurgence plan where we never have to shut down entirely again and can manage that balance of readiness without economically damaging uh, the core healthcare system that we need. So I, 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 am, I am an MBA student. I have to ask a management perspective question. What, what was the temperature inside the California Hospital Association during the height of the pandemic in the spring and the summer? You know, how were you able to transition to crisis workloads? And you know, some employees that I had to imagine were working remotely. You know, how do you manage the, the staff during all this? Uh, wow, another great question. And maybe I can paint a little picture of the environment. Um, all of our staff are at home and will continue to be at home at least through the end of this year. California is in a place, literally we just reopened restaurants only up to 25% a week ago. Schools, many schools are not yet open. So California is still in the throes of this. For us, it happened overnight. And remember in California, we were the recipients of the repatriation of the Japanese cruise ships first. Then there were the cruise ships that were docking uh, in Oakland, California. We dealt with those patients and then community spread started. So we went from zero to a hundred, uh, you know, take your favorite Ferrari, right? It was, <laughs> it was that <laughs> in terms of an acceleration. Uh, and honestly, it was 24 seven on behalf of 416 hospitals. There was so much that was new information we didn't have, constant communication with the governor and his team, sharing and spreading that information. Uh, but our team was on seven days a week, day and night, because the governor and his team were relying on us for information as well. And we actually had our pulse uh, or our fingers on the pulse of where things were heating up, where outbreaks were happening and communicating that in real time figuring out what teams needed to be sent in. Honestly, on the telephone with hospitals, we're about to run out of N95s. Can you find us some? It was very different work. Usually it's policy and advocacy and you're dealing with laws and regulations. This was in the weeds, making real-time connections to help hospitals save lives. So the temperature 
hotter than I've ever seen it. And I've been doing this for over 35 years through Ebola and other crises like this. It was extraordinary. I will say it continues to be extraordinary. In California, uh, we saw huge numbers of hospitalizations in July and August. And while those have declined somewhat, uh, we are certainly not back where we were. We've seen a leveling off and we are watching carefully. Our numbers are creeping back up again. We're preparing for a very difficult fall and winter. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that is certainly evident where I'm living in New Hampshire. We've started to see our numbers go up in the region as well. And it's almost like we're all kind of holding on, you know, waiting to see what happens here. Um, Absolutely. It's going to be real, right? Opportunity where people are going to come together and maybe we're not going to be as careful as we should, but literally lives are at stake. Absolutely. Now, I, I do have to ask, you know, California was also in the news over the summer for the wildfires. You know, how did that complicate the, the COVID response? Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, you know, California is used to balancing things like wildfires and mudslides at the same time. Often aftermath of a wildfire. Uh, gotta tell you, uh, for those organizations dealing with both at the same time, it's been very difficult. And for a couple of reasons. Uh, California hospitals are used to evacuating patients, not used to evacuating COVID patients on ventilators in a prone position, multiples in the ICU, and having to move them out. We've had to do that. More important, when wildfires are in the area, and even when they're not in your area in California, the smoke in the air is thick. And we had so many days of horrible air quality, which drove people back inside into less safe environments as it relates to COVID. So, and third, um, all of that personal protective equipment and the respirators, all of a sudden we needed that many more for our firefighters and others who were having to deal with this and, and, and their own lives, which exacerbated the personal protective equipment shortages. So uh, I gotta tell you, for folks who are very seasoned here in the state of California with emergencies, um, it, was, it was really challenging. So I, I do have a you know another kind of build off question. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about how California is preparing for a tough fall and winter, um, but obviously you know emergency services and hospital services have to stay online for different populations. One of those populations is the chronic condition population, of which I'm a part of. I have cystic fibrosis. You know how are hospitals balancing that potential surge of COVID patients? with continuing care for folks who have chronic conditions or folks who need to access medical facilities for dialysis or, or things of that, of that nature? This is um, a serious challenge, not only that we face in California, but across the United States, and I think it's underappreciated. We still have many people who are fearful about coming to the doctor's office, the dentist's office, let alone the hospital, and especially for those with chronic conditions like yours, like others, uh, that in-between care is so critical to keep people uh, healthy and to keep the disease from exacerbating. We have serious challenges. We've done polling. Uh, people are very worried about coming back to the hospital. What we have done uh, is we have done uh, public service campaigns, uh, social media campaigns to let people know, do not put off the essential care that you need. And even if it's not urgent or emergent, that we now have learned a lot about this disease and how to prevent its spread. 
and that your doctor's office, your hospital is safe to go back. But we have still seen, um, and, and very sadly, reports of deaths of people who were having, for example, symptoms of a heart attack, but chose not to go to get attention. So we have partnered with the state and others, um, healthcare stakeholders, to really encourage people, don't put it off get the care you need, wear a mask, socially distanced when you do so, um, but we can keep you safe. So it's interesting you say that because, I, you know, I have, am used to a lifetime of, you know, quarterly or every other month hospital visits or clinic visits even. And, you know, in CF, we deal with these crazy infections. And going back to the hospital, I felt like a weird sense of ease because everyone was taking the infection control to the nth degree, something that I've always wanted. And it finally felt like it was actually happening. And I was actually seeing it inside these medical centers with universal masking and temperature checks everywhere you go. So I mean, I do agree with you that I felt weirdly safe inside of a hospital, given the worst health crisis of, of recent memory going on uh, inside our border. So I do think that um, it is, on one hand, just incredibly sad that I think that people are putting off these these visits, but at the same time, it, you know, I feel like it's a response and maybe a benefit that will persist beyond the scope of this pandemic about how hospitals are taking infection control to a different level and, and taking it to a different importance, really. You know, when you talked about how hot things have gotten, um, as things get more tense, we've really tried to focus on some of the COVID silver linings, we call them. And the one you've just pointed out is, is very real. And that is we are mindful of infection prevention and safety all of the time. But now all of us really are, it's at the forefront of our mind. We have redoubled our efforts. Even something as simple uh, with, within all of us, like hand washing. You know, how many times did our mothers say, wash your hands, wash your hands. Uh, people are really doing it. Our hand hygiene compliance, not just in hospitals, but out there in the community is at levels um, that we hope will never fall back. The, the awareness and the importance of day-to-day -day prevention and protection, uh, we hope, will continue long past this pandemic. Absolutely. And I, and I think there are, that COVID silver lining is, is an excellent phrase that I, that I plan to use moving forward. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the rise of telehealth. So I, I, I do want to ask, you know, in my own experience, my own care, we had the, the sudden rush to telehealth. Um, is telehealth going to be a disruptor for our hospital systems after the pandemic? Is it going to be a compliment? Um, and do you think people will feel like they need to get in front of a doctor or care team moving forward for their you know, usual checkups when telehealth seems to be doing a great job? Silver lining number two, telehealth. Uh, it will not be a disruptor for hospitals. It is really considered an incredible compliment. And um, somebody I was talking to uh, just the other day was saying this COVID pandemic, it's almost as if we have fast forwarded to the future. We have had this technology, but there's been this reluctance and all of a sudden we've gone there, whether that's you know what we've seen happen in the retail uh, sector of the economy, right? We're seeing that shut down and even more people purchasing online. That was probably going to happen anyway, but over a longer period of time. Telehealth is exactly the same. We've had the technology. We've had policy battles about whether you should pay for it and how much you should pay for it. What we know in California, again, from some polling is people are using it. They love it. 
and their healthcare providers love it. Why make people get in the car, drive to an appointment, sit in a room uh, to be seen when you could do that uh, on a screen? And, and we've got folks now, uh, right, age groups, uh, including some of our older Californians who are now very comfortable on Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. And for them, it's extraordinarily convenient, we hope. Uh, not only will we keep it, we're going to fight to expand it even more because if we can get people the care they need when they need it, right? Right care, right time, right setting, we will do best for the health of Californians. So I want to follow on that real quick that at the, at the start of the pandemic, policies around telehealth were relaxed to increase accessibility. Do you think that policymakers are ready to tackle the necessary regulatory business required to make telehealth accessible in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I'll use California as an example. We still have vast amounts of the state that have no broadband coverage, right? And, and, and no cellular service. It's a great place to go when you want to go on vacation and, and get away from things. Uh, but this is technology, I think, that we need to start viewing as, as a public utility and as essential to our disaster response capabilities. Um, so we've talked about fires and earthquakes, but in pandemics, and unfortunately this won't be the last, I think we all know that this era of infection spread, we're gonna be dealing with more of it, not less of it. And you know, we're talking about COVID-19, what does COVID-21 look like, COVID-22 look like? So um, yes, we've got to deal with the regulatory aspects, we've got to deal with the investment aspects and coming right back to the issue of equity. Um, I believe this will be a huge issue as it relates to equity and being able to provide healthcare to everyone who needs it. Absolutely. So now I wanna kinda continue with the, the COVID silver linings line of thinking here. What was the hardest lesson learned during the pandemic and how will that inform future choices that the California Hospital Association has to make on a macro level, but choices that hospitals, individual hospitals will have to make on a micro level? Great question. Hardest lesson learned. Um, I think for us, hardest lesson learned is that uh, sometimes you really do need centralized decision-making. Um, in California, huge state, we, uh, we really delegated a lot of that over time and, and throughout history to the local level. But I think it is daunting uh, for one person, whether that's a governor or a president, uh, to say, we're going to do it this way. The risks are enormous. Uh, I am pleased to say that I think um, a large part of our success in the state of California was because our governor uh, really did the hard job of making some critical decisions in an environment of imperfect information. Um, and you mentioned you know, your, your, your business training. Uh, nobody likes to make decisions in environments of imperfect information. We still didn't know about the virus, right? We still don't know about the virus. There's much that we're learning, but at some point, you've just got to grab it and go. And so uh, that was difficult. It was, we were attempting to address a pandemic uh, in ways we hadn't done before. But I think um, another silver lining on all this, we partnered and we collaborated. We had everybody in the room. We listened to every perspective. We actually moved from the role of advocate 
to almost the role of adjunct staff. How can we be helpful to you so that we can help Californians? It was no longer about hospitals and doctors and nursing homes and regulators. It was, we are all in this lifeboat together. Absolutely. So I, I can't get, let you get away without one question about healthcare costs in the United States, sort of the, the hot button issue right now, uh, and, and probably will be for quite some time. Uh, the Peterson Center on Healthcare and the Kaiser Family Foundation put out a brief at the end of September that said inpatient and outpatient spending in the United States is almost two and a half at times as much as any comparable country. Why does the U.S. spend so much inside our hospitals? And beyond that, is there an answer for lowering those costs? The issue of healthcare affordability, I believe, is one of the most important issues of our time. And it's not that it hasn't been a concern or a debate for many years, uh, but now is the time for us to address this. We're doing so in the state of California. Um, the challenge is that the conversation has to be much deeper than it is right now. People often take a look at the data like you've just presented and said, well, that's a lot. But the questions we really need to ask ourselves to your question, why? If you look internationally and compare healthcare spending to spending in other countries on healthcare, the United States looks high. If you add in how much we spend on social services, education, right, um, uh, preschool, those sorts of things, that starts to even out because we spend far less in the United States on social services than they do, for example, in some of the European uh, countries. And what we know is more education, higher income, uh, early childhood uh, feeding, right, and, and, and care and prevention all acts to lower your healthcare costs overall. I think there's a second issue in the complicated question of affordability, and that is access. So if the implication is spending more is bad, I think that's the wrong premise. The question should be, what are we getting for what we spend? And my own view is we've got very uh, hand-fisted, imperfect measures of what we actually get for what we spend. In the United States, uh, we spend a lot for, I believe, small marginal improvements in the quality of life. But if it's my life, <laughs> uh, I, I wanna spend that uh, for that small improvement. So um, yes, and, and everything down to our model of healthcare delivery. We deliver healthcare in the United States in, in a market economy. Uh, and it is an economy um, of some fee-for-service medicine, more that's moving to managed care. Uh, but certainly if you are living in a country where it is financed uh, and paid for by the government, it is different, but the receipt of care is also different uh, in that country. So what I'd like to see us do is a solid evaluation of all of those issues, an understanding of what we want, are there places to make care more affordable? Absolutely, hospitals included, and we ought to be at the forefront of that. Great, now, Carmilla, thanks for your time today. This was a, a great chat. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I really appreciate the time. That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17Esiason, and you can check out my website at GunnarEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Carmela Coyle and the California Hospital Association for today's interview. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. See you next week.